Hello, and welcome to another episode of City on a Hill, a podcast about what it means to be a citizen of heaven and a citizen of the United States. We want to encourage Christians to find their tribe in the church and their hope in the kingdom of God, rather than to seek both in the kingdom of man. So with that, let's get to it today. Well, hello, my name is Eric Eastep. And I'm Scott Rabley. And this is another episode of the City on a Hill podcast. Today, well, today we are going to talk about what is your expectation when you uh, wake up in the morning, you walk out into the world, what is your expectation about the environment in which you live? Is this, what, what are some different phrases we could use? Are you at home or are you in exile? I was thinking about some of the travel I've, I've not done a lot of travel, but I've done some travel. And getting out into another country, especially when I get across the Atlantic or something, um, realizing, okay, this isn't my country. I don't know how this works. I don't know. I don't know that the facial expression I automatically give is going to be insulting or whether it's going to be something else. Um, hand gestures. I, do you look people in the eye or do you look away? Right. And it's, it's how do you very do all different. those things? Yeah. yeah it's... I, there, there's it's very obvious when you're somewhere else that I don't feel at home. The daily rhythms are different. Mm-hmm. I remember I was in Ukraine and we would get up in the morning and go down to the market and buy the bread that we would go home then and mm-hmm. eat for breakfast, which I've never really shopped before breakfast before. Oh, that is and that, that. that was different. And uh, I remember being in Italy and they'd start dinner at 9.30 or 10 and mm-hmm. I'm already dropping you know falling asleep i'm thinking how does this work and i just and and then you you have things and meal it comes in a certain order there kind of all the time Mm -hmm. you know my dinners just pile them on the plate and eat them Mm -hmm. here you know so it's a there there are a lot of different things that happen when you're when you're not at home and it's it's fine other families do it different here too you know just down the street but you just have to figure it out when you're when you're somewhere else right you you have to look around pick up clues get some coaching whatever it is Mm -hmm. to figure out okay what am i going to do about all these things that i took for granted for so long right and the interesting thing when you're traveling unless you're and i know this is possible unless you're a really obnoxious and american that decides Everyone needs to bend to me and just figure it out for me. I know most people that are listening are going to go, no, that's not my general MO. Uh, if you are traveling, you realize I don't automatically feel comfortable here. Things are different than I'm used to. Things. This isn't my home. This isn't where I live. This isn't where, where I've learned to do the way I do interaction. And it's a given. It's not a, hey, guys, figure it out. Well, you bend did, to my will. You did sort of hit on it right there. Because the obnoxious American is pretty much a cliche around the world when Americans travel. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I've even been public places in other countries where my hosts will point out that person's American. You can tell by blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wow, I hope I'm not so obvious. But but I think that's, that's really what we want to get to today mm-hmm. is uh, are we... How are we going to relate to the world that we're in? Are we going to be uh, at home here and and presume that America is our home? Are we going to presume that we are somehow foreigners and we're trying to figure out how to live here in America? Or are we going to be some obnoxious foreigner Mm. who comes in and, as you said, tries to bend the world to its will Mm. and makes it uh, awkward for everyone? Mm -hmm. And... You know that's the that's the the question when you 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 started by asking are we at home or are we uh, strangers or exiles and I think that the the scripture the scripture gives us that as an option. Let mm-hmm. me just say the scripture gives us an option that that maybe the best way to view the world as a Christian is that it isn't your home. Mm. And if it isn't your home, then you're in exile. And that's actually what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And the, 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 uh, 
the plea comes to the church specifically because they don't belong in the world. Mm-hmm. And the, these, these passions that are predominant in the world around them don't belong to them. You have the same thing in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 13. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Mm. Not just in their country. On, on the, the earth. earth. Yeah. Right. And I would... I guess I would suggest that if the church thought of themselves as strangers and exiles, we would we would have a completely different approach to our engagement in politics, our engagement in worldly affairs, if we thought of ourselves as not belonging rather than thinking of ourselves as belonging. Mm. And I think that's some of it. And, 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 and we come by that naturally, though. I don't want to say, oh, whoever thinks they belong here, they're bad. The reality is the, the history of our country uh, has been the entire time, really, that Protestants have been the dominant, certainly the dominant religious force, and even more than that, really the dominant f- force, period, mm-hmm. in the construction of our country. And as far as the, as far as even the, um, the expected morality, the work ethic, the, uh, the schedule, the work, the work week, the whole thing. Yeah, you guys wonder why you have a weekend? The whole thing <laughs> bends around Protestant, the Protestant faith. Mm. And that's something that, that if we're not aware that that's the way that it works or why it works that way, we're going to think we're not going to know it's just like going to that other country mm-hmm. not knowing why the refrigerator is so small well it's because mm-hmm. they walk down the market every day mm-hmm. or, or some other custom like that you just don't you don't see what what's the force behind it and we inherited a ton of christian relics mm-hmm. by that i don't mean pieces of the cross and those sorts of relics out of Turin. <laughs> all of those. There are pieces of culture that have trickled down to us that all have a stamp of Christianity. And that's not bad. I don't want to mm-hmm. say that that's bad. That's not bad. But what that does is that makes us feel at home. Mm. That grants, I'm going to say Protestants, uh, a sense of privilege and position and uh, in some respect, entitlement that I think we need to be really careful about. And that's, that's what I hope we get to talk about today, mm. because that sense that, that this all belongs to me mm. and it all ought to be Christian, mm-hmm. is that's something that we inherited from our forefathers, and it's for the most part a good thing, but it isn't really the way that Christianity, I don't think, was shaped or meant to be lived. Uh, one of the terms that is used for the the inherited uh, culture that has a Christian stamp is the word Christendom. And I was trying to think, okay, if we're going to talk about Christendom, we better have a definition. Mm-hmm. Uh, Srin Kierkegaard uh, said that Christendom refers to both the legal institutions of the church and to the culture those institutions create. Think of the distinctions roughly like this. Christianity is the faith. Christians are the believers in the faith. And Christendom is the collective culture and institutions of the faith. And I thought that that was really helpful because uh, I don't think that I'm, I'm really sure I don't want to jettison Christianity and I love Christians who are believers in the faith. It is this collective culture that for the most part, just like living in America, I'm not aware of American culture because I don't recognize that that's what it is. I swim in this lake. I'm right. used to it. Yeah. Right. And the same thing is true with Christianity. It is a there are cultural aspects that I don't recognize, and those things, many of them are very, very good. So mm-hmm. I'm not speaking against them. I'm just saying, nor am I would I speak against living in America because 
just because it has a culture, that's it, it has one. Right. Doesn't make it bad. Right. It makes it a culture. It doesn't make it good, though, necessarily, just because I'm comfortable there. Mm-hmm. I think that's some of what I want to say about that. That's, let's say that again. It's, it's not good just because I'm comfortable there. That's helpful. Yeah, that's not what makes it good, I don't mm-hmm. think. Uh, so the this collective culture and this influential force that Christendom has been uh, does provide a sense of uh, power, position, privilege to, well, I might as well stick with peace, to Protestants in some respect, to well, Catholics, let's, let's too. Let's blow it up a little bit, though, too, because we're, we're talking about America, which is a is a narrowed focus. Christendom is far bigger than America. Th- that's really fair, and uh, it's far more historic than Far America. more historic, and I was thinking about this as you're reading First Peter and Hebrews. He's talking to these these Christians of this new sect, really, that had just broken out, and they're, they're, um, the diaspora of these exiles are all throughout um, the Middle East and over towards Rome. And they were sitting in a culture where Rome was dominant. And they were, it was easy to know they were exiles because they, they don't have the power structure anywhere. Rome is dominant. Rome uh, controls. Uh, you listen to Rome. You deal with Rome. Mm-hmm. And shortly thereafter, we've talked about Augustine uh, recently. Uh, Many weeks ago, we talked about Augustine. And his book, City of God, was a response to Rome falling. Mm -hmm. And people were trying to blame the Christians on Rome falling. And he writes this huge book, and you should read it, or at least read a a bridge version. Um, But shortly thereafter, you have uh, the philosophy of, of Greece, you have the law of Rome, and then you have Christianity, the influence of Scripture, melding together to create the Western civilization. Those things come together, and from then on, after the fall of Rome, the uh, not the resurgence, but would would be the surgence. I don't know what the word is. Um, The beginning of Christendom starts when uh, Christianity, the people who hold the Christian faith, begin to have sway in the power structures of the way the world is governed well you could even say it is a resurgence because you've got constantine mm-hmm. before that in mm-hmm. the roman empire and that's that's what augustine was reacting to mm-hmm. was it became christian and right. then it fell and that must be because they believed in christianity mm-hmm. and so you could say it's resurgence yes all yeah, that good, to say resurgence yeah, good, is good a good word yeah. I, for, I forgot about that timeline but from then on so Thousands of years, there has been the West progressing uh, all all over the world. The different different portions of the world are considered the West, and since the beginning, Western civilization has had an influence of Christianity. So, wherever you go and, and you touch the West, you're gonna uh, experience bits of Bible because it's there. It's it's part of the thing that's woven in uh, to this thing we call Christendom, and one of the most I don't know, notable pieces would be America, where it's just probably the most concentrated form. Well, I don't even know if that's true, because I'm thinking about, you were talking about Protestantism. Christendom would include Catholicism as well. It does. Uh, Pre-America, you have countries saying, okay, the established religion here is going to be Protestantism or Church of England. Um, No, it's going to be Catholicism and back and forth, and we're going to have wars over this thing. So... It's not. It's it not a new problem, and it doesn't change Christendom when it goes from Church of England to Catholicism right. or b- back and forth. That's still all part of a, a, a Western Christian influenced society. Mm-hmm. They're just trying to say which is going to be right, which version is going to be more dominant here. And I think part of what I'm trying to to point out is that the influence is a good influence, and it's been there for thousands of years, um, which makes it. It's, it's the lake we're swimming in. Like, this is automatically part of the world you live in. And it's not necessarily that Christianity is uh, widespread, but the influences of Christianity are widespread. And uh, just because I live in the soup doesn't mean it's Christianity. It's Christendom, which are the institutions and the structures and the laws and some of the cultural cues. Um, but it's not faith widespread. That's a, that's a good distinction that your Christianity is not Christendom. Or this cultural expression is not necessarily Christian, uh, and that's that's good. But the, the, there's so many rabbit holes to go down here. When you say that the influence is good, I mean the influence 
of science and literature and arts and all of those things have sprung from Christianity in some level mm-hmm. and were developed in Christendom. Schools, and those, hospitals. Yes, and those are cultural That's what we're talking about, though, in some respect. Mm -hmm. Those are the cultural institutions and cultural uh, sway that Christianity has uh, really brought. And now it is sort of sitting there historically for us. We call it Christendom. Mm -hmm. And that then is... So I'm going to get out of the bunny holes for a minute (laughs) because I I do want to go down there because it's so good. And it, and it is so good. And, and I, please, dear listener, do not think that we are uh, critical or somehow uh, that we don't, we're not in, we don't like Christendom or mm. th- these things are so, so good and we are so, so much better off because of them. That, however, makes being a Christian and gathering with other Christians in a church to be sort of, it's like a force field that warps this gravitational pull, really. Mm. Uh, because in Christendom, there is a privilege of position that the, the church enjoys that we take for granted and we expect it will always be that way. And that is, that's really tricky. Because, first of all, we don't normally think of ourselves as privileged by position. That we normally think of ourselves, we're just a church. We're mm-hmm. just Christians. Mm-hmm. And we're like everybody else. Well, we are except for right. several things. And um, that was most explicit, this privilege of position is most explicit when there is an established religion. Mm-hmm. Which, thankfully, the First Amendment tells us won't happen formally in America. Mm-hmm. But there has been sort of a uh, pseudo-establishment, you might say, because of the, really, the... um, And George Marsden, in the book that I'm reading, Religion in America, does talk about this, how between uh, Protestants and and Catholics and then even the, uh, the Jews, they form these three different aspects of this judeo-christian influence in america that came to be uh, dominant and the thankfully it's not established in other words not illegal to be of some other religion but there are there are things that threaten that privilege Hmm. that uh, we all get pretty nervous about and you know those things those things seem to be i'm just going to say that when i was growing up that thing there was only really one was communism mm. and now it seems like there's many more things mm-hmm. seems like the things that threaten the privilege of position there that people are constantly making noise about tax codes that are somehow they're they're not going to have uh, tax deductible uh, donations anymore, or churches or, tax or chats are churches aren't going to be tax exempt anymore. Or there's that. There's uh, there are threats sort of everywhere about sexual uh, identity and how you handle uh, same sex marriage and those sorts of things. These these appear to be threats to the privileged position that the historic Protestant Church has enjoyed. Hmm. And uh, that betrays, (laughs) that betrays the assumption that, that we think laws and policies should reflect Protestant morality. Mm. In other words, so that's a historic thing. They always have. Mm -hmm. In fact, we, uh, one of these days, want to do a episode on prohibition, for instance, but that was, that was in some respect, the church trying to put their foot down and say, we want to say this is how the country ought to operate. Specifically it, Protestants. Actually, specifically evangelicals. But that's another episode. Yeah, it is. and Not the church broad. It wasn't Eastern Orthodox. And the, yeah, there, were some, there were some that, that uh, yeah, weren't part of it. But it was, it was largely led by um, 
evangelicalism. That was really the beginning of sort of the evangelical movement. But mm -hmm. anyway, that's a different podcast because we do want to talk about that at some point. But there, but that does reflect this, the expectation that laws and policies will match up with my Protestant heritage. And, and that's not bad. I don't I mean, I, I think that to the degree that there's morality, to the degree that things are uh, upright and honest and good, we'll have a better country. So that's sure. not a bad thing. I just have to recognize that that's my assumption. And it's, um, I'm trying to think of the right words here. Pr privilege, I suppose, is the right word, but that's, that's a bit of grace that is unexpected. If something happens to be uh, within the morality that looks to line up with Scripture, that's not how the world has operated really since the beginning. Governments don't come together and happen to line up their laws with, with Bible. And if it does go that way because the influence of Western civilization is, is big, great, awesome. But we also live in a pluralistic country. <laughs> and so to expect that it will always lean that way is to sit in a position of privilege that we don't, we're not aware of. And we, this is our place, we belong here, this is our thing, and things are automatically going to bend to my will because I'm here, this is my country. And as you, even as you talk about it that way, I think about um, what happens when that changes. And see, as, as it changes to be less and less a privilege of position, and becomes more and more normal, in other words, normal as in the rest of the world, Right. That is that a Christian problem? In other words, does that make, does that compromise the church and Christianity? Because the laws of the land or the morals of the land are changing. Mm. Does, that, does that injure the church or... Mm might that actually help the church? And the, the reason I even asked the question goes back to the very thing we were talking about the, at the very, very beginning. What, what do I think I am here? Do mm -hmm. I think I'm at home and I'm trying to protect my home or am I here in exile and I don't expect that the, the kingdom of this world will match up with the kingdom of heaven? Mm. And I really am all about the kingdom of heaven. And so I may have to make my way in the world and figure out all those things like we would if we were traveling. But that's, that to me is, is where the rub comes in because it, it, that changes how I then engage the world. Mm. I engage the world at a level of make, you know, be like me mm -hmm. if I think that Christendom is something I need to hold on to. If I don't think that, if I if I understand that's been my assumption all along, let me come in and you know, in the brokenness or whatever, bring good news, mm -hmm. and not try and bring that, you know, bring it back to what it was, but rather say, the church is going to live here in a in a way that is different from the way that it did a hundred years ago. It's right. going to be in exile. I think you approach the world differently then. Well, I like that. The, what is threatened when something flows and is, is becoming more influential that is not biblical morality or whatever? What's threatened? The church is not threatened. Jesus is the head of the church, and Jesus is going to win. Um, those, those secondary structures that have been a great ad for us to some degree over the past 2,000 years— Maybe those things are threatened, but if you're talking about church proper, um, there actually may be a, I think you said better, but maybe a, a clarifying influence that that would have. All of a sudden, the, the trappings of Christendom, yeah, let's, let's put those to the side for a bit, and we're going to be the church, and now it'll be easier to live like 1 Peter and Hebrews 11, to live like, the, like what they were doing. Because, oh yeah, it's, it's obvious we are strangers in a strange land. And I think gravitational pull is kind of a, a good 
picture because it does feel like, yes, I want, I, I like that privilege. Mm-hmm. And I get pulled in that direction. And I think that's some of the tension that we have. And so we have to, we have to think about, okay, how am I going to live now in uh, the world? And, and again, some of those things that, that sprung up in, in Christendom, I do think that it will likely be Christians that still continue to mm. care for the sick and, you know, the different things like they did in the beginning. I, I, I trust that that will still be the case, mm-hmm. but we may not have the institutional advantages that we enjoyed in the past several hundred years. Mm. And so that's, that's, I don't know, it's really hard to express it. I guess, I guess here is where the rub is for me too, talking about the, the losing of the, you know, losing some of the influence of Christendom. Uh, I'm, I'm preaching this Sunday on uh, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. And I hear a lot about the loss of Christendom and people saying, I hope that you as a pastor don't go to jail for preaching the gospel. Or I hope that there's not this other pressure on you. You know, I expect you'll get persecuted, blah, 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 whatever. And what they're saying is, they don't, I, I think this is what they're saying. They may not mean it this way or you've enjoyed this privilege for so long. Mm. I hope that 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 you all of a sudden don't pay for being faithful to Jesus when before you were privileged and didn't. Now, I say it that way because when someone doesn't want me to be persecuted, they what they're saying as far as Jesus values and the Beatitudes go is mm. they don't want my greatest blessing. Mm. They want my... They want... They, they, we confuse the blessing. This is, this is the Christendom piece. We confuse the blessing of being persecuted, and we say to be blessed is to not be persecuted. Mm. That that's, what, that's what true blessing is. Right. And to me, that's Christendom. And this, is, this might be helpful, actually, in this distinction we're talking about. If, if blessing is not being persecuted, then you are working under a Christendom mindset where we're privileged, we have power, and we have position. Mm. If you're saying no, real blessing is getting persecuted, then that's that's how an exile rolls. Right. <laughs> They're saying, you know what, the real blessing is that I'm not like all these other people, or my values aren't, or my culture's not. I am. Uh, I don't belong here, right? Because I and my blessing is the kingdom of heaven, my true home. Well, that reminds me of the words of Jesus in Matthew 16. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If if that's not one of the most countercultural phrases I've ever heard and <laughs> connected with it, it in opposition to just an American way of thinking about the world, I don't know what it is. That's just so I'm going to I'm going to pursue I'm not going to pursue discomfort, but I'm. I'm going to be with Jesus. He experienced pain and punishment and difficulty, and I'm going to be with him. Crosses are not fun. Crosses are not. Well, um, again, let's take the opposite approach, though, Eric. Jesus endured the cross, suffered the shame and the embarrassment and the humiliation. And I don't want that. Mm-hmm. I've enjoyed not having that. And people like me, pastors, have enjoyed not having that for mm-hmm. a long time. So I don't want that to go away. Right. Okay, that, even my very saying that, I haven't been struck by lightning. Yeah, that would ruin our equipment. I hope that doesn't happen. But, but my saying that betrays my uh, esteem for Christendom and my lack of esteem for Jesus. Mm. I, I'm afraid. Mm. So I just want us to recognize we got here we got here how we got here, and we mm-hmm. inherited things by the way we got here. We inherited a privilege of position and some power, and we expect that things should line up for us like they have for the past several hundred years, and that things that threaten that position, that privilege of position are bad. That's Those are our assumptions when we're living under Christendom, mm-hmm. which would be, let's not have a cross, <laughs> let's not have persecution. Right. 
Uh, We're winning if we have avoided all crosses. Right. That's the blessing. Mm -hmm. However, thinking in terms of being uh, an exile. So, again, shifting from the the metaphor of being at home or the idea of being at home to being a foreigner or stranger or exile as the, as the New Testament talks about uh, Christians. If you're in exile, you don't have any um, expectation of privilege or power or position. Hmm. You are the the exiles in Babylon had no rights. So they just were they went there as prisoners. They were there against their will. They couldn't go home. They were exiles. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I don't have those expectations, it does. I, I'm a lot more free. Mm-hmm. I can be a little. I can be a little more object, objective anyway about what's going on in the world around me. So I'm just recommending that the church begin to think of itself as exiles. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also gives me a future and a hope that my home is not here. In other words, mm. this world doesn't have to be the best world ever. Right. Because there's a better world coming. Right. And all of my hopes and dreams don't get pinned here, which is completely liberating. But it's incredible. Very tempting to say, no, uh, I want it to be, I want it to be good here now. Well, and if you have such a short term view, of your hopes and dreams, you're going to put all of your effort and all of your energy, all your blood, sweat, and tears into making sure this stays okay. To protect it, right. And But if you were able to be an exile and go, I'm just here, this is this is the house I live in, and this is these are the people I interact with, and but my hope and my dreams and my expectations are all set on a coming kingdom and a coming new heaven and new earth, and all these things will be remedied, Man, liberating is the perfect word for that. I can walk around and I can I can still give effort. I can still uh, love my neighbors, but it's decoupled from oh, I need I need to preserve this place. It's it's so different. Uh, we have some really good friends who have immigrated here from Iran, mm. and uh, I I visited Iran when I was in high school, and I'm just gonna say it's very different than it is here. And so when they move here. And it's very different. They're, hardly a week goes by when they're not trying to figure something out. Mm. First of all, they don't expect to be like everybody else. Mm. Uh, uh, Sudi wears a head covering. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't care that other women don't. And she doesn't expect to... She, she just doesn't expect to fit in on that. Mm. That's just how she rolls. And mm-hmm. that's fine. And we love her, and she loves us, and it's good. But she didn't expect to be the same as everybody on that. She didn't work at trying to blend in and not be noticed. Mm -hmm. And um, on the one hand, on the other hand, I would say (laughs) it is hard, hard work for them to figure out how does how does it the world work over here? Mm -hmm. Because the the banking and the post office and the social security office and the, uh, all of these things are completely foreign and things that I never thought about. Cause I took them for granted, you know, they kind of happened to me, mm-hmm. but when they have to come figure it out, it's, it's really different. And so I think that that different, but trying to figure out is I think also a really good model for mm. the church. If the church can re- remain distinct and not expect, I'm going to be like the people down the street. I'm going to be different than them, and that's going to be okay. Right. And I'm going to try and figure them out. I'm going to do everything I can to understand what is it that drives people and makes it uh, makes them uh, who they are. So, I th- I think your your whole set of assumptions underneath living as an exile are completely different, and strike me as much easier to align with the demands of Jesus, Mm. like the cross, like blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek. That all aligns easier if you're in exile than it does if you're at home here. And one other rabbit trail, mild, small, little rabbit trail. Don't tempt me. If, If I'm living as an exile and it's, I assume that people around me are different and I have to observe to figure out what's going on here and, and how does this work. I think 
mission becomes easier too because now I have the observations of a, of a missionary. It's different. I, I have come to a place that is not my home and I assume when I walk into this world, I don't need to just fit in. I'm not going to fit in. I have different values. I have a different king. I have a different expectation and hope. And if I sit in the world as an exile, I will observe differently and go, ah, I can see the story that they are assuming. And I, I can now tell them my story in a way that helps them understand that their story is insufficient. Um, I just think sitting in as, as an exile rather than sitting in Christendom helps us be better missionaries. Well, I think if you're, if you're sitting at home and you're not really thinking about your neighbor, mm-hmm. it, loving your neighbor is completely different, right? If I'm just assuming that, yeah, I'm the same as my neighbor and I don't need to think about him, I'm not going to love him the same way as I would if I was making a plan uh, to try and understand and think about and have, build a relationship with and all those things that uh, I think loving your neighbor entails. Mm. And so those assumptions, it seems to me, are uh, are pretty fundamental. And so, again, just want to encourage you, dear listener, that you think of yourself and the church that you're part of as a band of exiles who don't belong here, who are without privilege, power, position, and live in the world in a way that uh, remains keeps your distinctiveness and still tries to understand how to make the uh, how to make it in the world. That's that's the best way I can think of. Um, there's there's one passage, and this is actually what got us started on this whole topic. There's one passage where uh, Jeremiah talks about living in exile. And I think if we just spend a few minutes mm-hmm. thinking about that text, it could be, it could really help us think about how the the, the ramifications of being in ex, living in exile rather mm-hmm. than living at home in in Christendom. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's <laughs> Eric slapped about this. It's a, it's what's on every graduate's coffee mug. Oh yeah. It's uh, include it includes Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Mm. That, however, isn't the main point of it. The main point of it is here's here's how you live in exile. So let me read Jeremiah twenty nine four through fourteen, and then Eric, you can make some comments on that. How's that? A comment away on the on the coffee mugs or the passage? Uh, on the passage. <laughs> I I'm gonna try and keep you focused here. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give daughters, give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are complete for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Hmm. That's so good. And in all fairness, I'm, I was joking about the coffee mugs because I don't remember how many things I, how many objects I received in multiple graduations that had this verse in it. And it was kind of assumed here, take this, this is a promise for you, live your life in, in anticipation of this promise. And the funny thing is, it was often taken out of context. The funnier thing is, this is a great way to live in the world. If you take the whole passage 
And it's not it's not what we think it is, usually. There's, oh, there's a future and hope. Great. Um, but God is saying, my plan for you right now is to be in exile. Mm-hmm. And you need to realize that is your lot in life. That's how this is going to happen. And I want you to be fully invested in this exile. And just reading through, starting from the top, build houses and live in them. There's so much of, no, this is temporary. We're, we're not, we're going to change this. It's not going to... Um, not going to always be like this. We're going to spend all our effort and try to get out of this process. God to, to uh, Israel is saying, no, build a house. You need to build a house. Make sure there's a roof. This isn't going to be for a couple weeks. This isn't going to be for a couple years. You need to make houses. You need to plant gardens. And I don't know if you know this. You don't plant a garden on a Wednesday and get fruit on a Friday. It takes time. You have to wait for this stuff to grow and you have to wait for the produce I was just, I just passed our vine in our um, in our garden, and it's going to be years before we have any grapes on that vine. It takes a long time, and all the assumptions are you're going to be in exile for a while. So build things, build houses, um, continue. I wrote culture down. I wrote institutions down, which which could get conflated with Christendom, but I'm more talking about build these communities, build these structures that. Uh, make sure that there's community in this place. You're living together. You're eating food together. You're doing these things. Your, your exile is long-term. Live like it's long-term. Well, so you, you didn't want to conflate Christendom with this. Doing this successfully does change the way. In fact, it says straight up, in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's one of the ways that we that Christendom developed was that people were doing this. Christians right. did this. When when people came to America, they, you know, it's the the Christians anyway did this. And that's right. where Christianity got the influence right. that it has. And and again, I I have said this four times already. That's not bad. Right. But but the thing is when you rely on those advantages mm-hmm. rather than on living this way in the mm-hmm. world mm-hmm. that's where the rub comes in we we've come to rely i think on advantages that have accumulated to our benefit mm-hmm. rather than saying you know what i'm going to seek the welfare of the city and in its welfare i'll find my welfare right and that i think is what you're advocating and that's what scripture advocates right and it does turn out good that mm-hmm. i mean it turns yeah. out good yeah so Anyway, I, you said you didn't want to conflate, but I, I think that's some of where Christendom comes from. And I think faithful, faithful exiled Christians naturally have the ramifications of Christendom in their wake. They do well by doing good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he says build houses. Uh, the other one that stuck out to me is take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give daughters in marriage. First off, have kids. Grow families. I don't know how many people... I got four kids now, and I would tell people I have four kids, and they go, what? You must take the Bible literally, <laughs> you Eric. You must take that's, the Bible literally. That's good that you, you read the Bible literally. Multiply. Um, but I, I've heard people say, I don't know if I can have kids in this environment. Mm-hmm. I, don't know if, I, I don't know if I want to bring kids into this. This is a lot better than Babylon. And God says in Babylon, take wives, have sons and daughters, have kids, uh, Build families, have grow grandkids, families, have, have grandkids. great grand, grandkids here. Yeah, and I think the astounding thing is that what he says later, seventy years from now, um, he's telling these people that are being exiled to Babylon, and this this will get me, I'm sure. He says, "I'm going to take you out of exile, but basically, you're not going to be here anymore. You're going to be dead. Hmm. The people he's talking to are not going to be around in seventy years. People didn't live that long back mm-hmm. then." And he's saying, build this up because I will rescue the exiles, but it's not going to be you. It's going to be your kids and it's going to be your grandkids. And you need to live here as exiles and you need to grow and you need to be rooted here and continue to seek the welfare of the city um, because it's not going to be you. It's going to be people down the way. And there's, there's so much, there's no, there's no fear in this passage. Like the fear I hear all the time about our status here or our privilege here or whatever there is there's a hopeful expectation that the god who put us here will rescue us one day and i think that's the same expectation we have we don't have the same scenario but we have the same expectation these are the same type of 
ways to think about the world. Well, the, the fear of losing something is a huge fear. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're referring to. Exiles don't have the fear of losing it. They've already lost it. It's already gone. <laughs> it's already gone. And they're trusting in the Lord that he might restore them or might restore their favor or their welfare. Mm. And so that is a prospective instead of a, a retrospective look at the world. And so you're right. There is no fear. That was a really good observation. Mm. And then seven, if you just, I don't know, put this on your, put it on your, your, your uh, mirror when you're getting ready for the day, figure out how you're going to interact with your neighbors. It says, seek the welfare of the city, pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare. You will find your welfare. If this was the posture, the given posture of Christians, what what a world we would live in. I see so much of, oh, they're coming after us. We need to own them. We need to win. We need to beat them. Mm-hmm. If people just sought the welfare of their city, I, there is so much good you can do in whatever. I don't even know what city you live in, listener. Um, but if I just compare to my city, I can raise my hand and say, hey, I'd like to help. Mm-hmm. And there are 15 places I can help. And... If there is an exile sitting among those people volunteering that has a different hope than everybody else, one, that'll be good for the city. And two, people will see different stories. They will see where your hope is set. And please pray for, I have a reminder set every week to pray for, it says political leaders, but that includes anybody in government, anybody in the city. Um, Rather than gripe about your city, just pray for your city. In its welfare, you will find your welfare, uh, not in its getting beat down, not in owning the people you disagree with. Um, God knows where you live. God knows you are in exile. God knows that the values of the people that live around you are not the same as your values. And his word to you is pray for them. And I just, that's so striking because I know that you don't live in Babylon and Babylon is horrible. <laughs> And if God tells them to do this for the for Babylon, it it's it's easier for you to do it here. Um, so so pray for the city. Don't don't just gripe about the city. Another thing I think is super notable uh, in verse eight: Do not let your prophets. So let me just say that again: Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in in my name. I do not send. I did not send them. And I think some of the lies that could be told were, were you're not going to be an exile for very long. You're not supposed to be here. Um, all the things that are anti what God just said. And I think the same is true here. There's a bunch of people saying we have to save Christendom. We have to uh, protect against the loss of our privileges. We have to protect against the loss of our tax-exempt status or make sure that... Um, there's no danger. Make sure there's no danger. Yeah. All the things that they drive you with fear, do not listen to them. They are false prophets. And I just I think it's just so striking because right after that, he talks about the age again. Once many of you are dead, I will come back and rescue the exiles. Don't listen to these false prophets. Um, so I'm not going to name who false prophets could be, but I'm sure you've heard plenty of lies. And listen to the God that says you're in exile right now live as those who are in exile the king is coming it's going to be very obvious when the king shows up there's not going to be wait are you eh, are you Jesus are we are we sure about this it's going to be very obvious when your exile is over and it's not right now one one thing that I'm just was listening to you uh, talk about praying for your city and and being willing to uh, not listen to those false prophets. But one of the things that, that exiles, exiles don't have rights. They don't expect that they'll have rights. See, that's one of the signs that we're at home is we expect we have rights. Right. And uh, I can surrender my, even Jesus surrendered his rights for mm our sake that to the right people who had rights the rights that i yeah right and the rights that i do have i can surrender for the sake of someone else but that to me is one of the indications and one of the reasons that i wanted to have this conversation was because i've heard so much about standing up for our rights or don't let them take away our rights or whatever the case may be Mm. and that is 
a, you know, to me, that's a sign I'm not an exile mm. when I'm fired up about my own rights. Right. And uh, that's a good sign to seek the welfare of the city and to pray for mm-hmm. sure. So uh, that walking through that whole thing is just so encouraging. So thank you for doing that. Yeah, and I'd encourage people just to go there again, Jeremiah 29, 11, 4 through 14. Just read that. There are so many good points for us as we interact in this world. It's just so fitting. It, mm-hmm. Every time I read it, I go, oh, yeah, that's what I should be doing. <laughs> that's, that's a, those are practical ways to love my neighbors, um, be rooted. And I please teach your children to, realize, to expect the hope that's coming um, because frankly, Jesus is probably going to come not when when you're around. It's going to be your children or your grandchildren. And one of the things we do as exiles is make sure to tell the story of our coming King to our kids. That's what we're doing. And it's not just to rescue Christendom because people are attacking Christendom. It's to make sure the hope and the expectation and the glory of Christianity is told to our children because the King is coming. And we need to keep it in in front of their faces and remind them and tell them that story so they know it. So that when he comes, they are exiles that are longing for his coming. Yeah, raising children who are exiles is a pretty interesting prospect and probably the topic for another podcast. Mm-hmm. But, but I think that's, again, children adopt the vision of the world that their parents have. Mm-hmm. And if I have a fearful, rights-based... Um, view of the world my kids will get it too and Mm -hmm. i'm gonna try and pass on this uh exile worldview and i think there's a ton there for us to to contemplate and i think it's going to be i think it'd be really really good for the church to just say we are collected here on a sunday morning Mm -hmm. gathering as a group of exiles Mm. uh, representing a foreign kingdom whose hope is great Mm. That's good. That's good. Well, friends, I hope this was helpful. Uh, maybe ponder all this, do some actions in association with Jeremiah 29, uh, 4 through 14, and send us an email and tell us what you did that is in conjunction oh, with Jeremiah 29. Um, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us. If you find this helpful, write a review. That goes a long way. Send it to a friend. Post it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever the other things are. I don't remember. Um, post it out there. That's how people tend to find things. Share it. And if you do have questions uh, or cool actions that you did, send them to podcast at newlifenw.com. And we look forward to the next conversation. Yeah,